Go ahead and grab your seats. It's great to be together singing about God's goodness. I'm glad to be at church with my church family today in Mesa. We got church family at South Mountain, at Fountain Hills, in our chapel, and online. How many of you are glad to be here today? Yes. We are in a series in Exodus, and we're going to be covering a lot of scripture today, and that's okay. We like the Bible here at Generation Church. Uh, I love uh, when I talk to someone, you know, like who grew up Catholic or something, and they'll say, you know, I hear more scripture in one sermon here than I think I heard in 10 years growing up in the Catholic Church. And it's true, but that's why all of our sermons are pretty helpful, not because I'm a great preacher, but because God's word is living and active, and it always comes through for us. We're going to be in chapter 3 today, going through verses uh, 1 through 15, and we're going to talk about Moses and the burning bush, a very famous Bible story, and I think it's going to help you today as we study this together. Moses was about 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian, and then he fled to the desert in Midian, got a wife, had some kids, and then where we pick up today, he's 80 years old, so 40 more years have gone by as we pick up in chapter 3. Now he's 80, and I think that's encouraging to someone today, because if you're 38 years old and you're discouraged or depressed, feeling like you haven't done anything with your life yet, hold on to hope, brother, because there is still time. (laughs) Moses would be the leader of God's people and kind of the leader of leaders, and I think um, as a church leader, as a pastor, there's a lot of uh, important lesson in his life and how God prepared him for leadership. The first 40 years, he was educated by royalty, and he learned wisdom that he needed that he wouldn't have gained as a slave. And then the next 40 years, he served as a shepherd, taking care of sheep. And I think that's the kind of leader God wants for his people, not a king to rule over them, but a shepherd to protect and care for them. That's the way Jesus leads us, isn't it? So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. We're going to read some, and we're going to talk about it and read some more. It says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. They called him Raul in the last chapter. Jethro here, he has more than one name, kind of like Kanye and Yeezy, you know, has like more than one name. Uh, The priest admitted he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. That makes sense. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. So as we talk about this, I want to point out some things. First, when you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, uh, most theologians and scholars believe that this is what is called a theophany. It is an Old Testament manifestation of God. Most theologians believe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Before Jesus came to earth as a man, he was always God. He is God. He's always existed. And so it makes sense that he was moving on earth uh, before the time he came to earth as a man. So many theologians believe this is the pre-incarnate son of God come to earth as a man as the angel of the Lord. It was also the angel of the Lord who stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac, knowing that someday he would be the sacrifice. 
Scripture goes on to say it was the angel of the Lord who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, knowing that someday he'd lead us all out of slavery in sin. So when you read in the Old Testament, it says like an angel, that could be like any angel, but a lot of times you'll see the angel of the Lord, and you know this might be God, especially like in this passage where it says the angel of the Lord, and, and he's having a conversation with God in the same conversation. I think it's interesting that he calls Moses' name twice. You know, maybe the first time Moses would have thought he just imagined it. But there are ten times in the Bible where God repeats a name or Scripture repeats a name twice like this. Uh, It's Abraham. You see it with Jacob, with Moses, with Samuel, with Martha, with Simon, with Saul, uh, with the Lord, with Eloi or God, Jerusalem. And doing so was an expression of personal closeness and intimacy. And also every time you saw a person's name stated twice in Scripture that person was elevated to greater importance in the Bible. And I think it's interesting, God called Moses by name. He could have said, hey, guy, come over here. Hey, dude, I made you come over here. But he said, Moses. And it reminds me that God knows you by name, and he knows you personally. He doesn't just think of you as one of billions of Christians who have been saved, but he knows you and every hair on your head, every decreasing number of hairs on my head, God knows And he cares about you in a personal way, and he has a plan for your life like he had a plan for Moses' life. This bush was engulfed in flames. That's not normal. It might have been normal to see a fire out in the wilderness, maybe from like a lightning strike or a campfire that got out of control. But as Moses is watching this bush on, on fire, I think we can learn some things as we think about fire. God appears as fire in the Bible. He's called fire multiple times. And we know this, that the way you relate to fire depends on whether it's helpful or hurtful to you. A fire can warm you. It can keep you alive. It can cook your food. It can purify water. Or it can burn your house to the ground. And in the same way, the way you relate to Jesus determines the kind of experience that you have with God. To his enemies, God is a scary, wrathful, consuming fire. Like it says in Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. In Psalm 97, it says, fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. And then to his children, like us, most of us, he's a guiding fire. That's one of the ways you see him in Exodus 13. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light. And then sometimes we have impurities in our life, and our God, because he loves us, will act as a refining fire. In Malachi 3, it says, he will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. So our God refines us, and he makes us more pure in Jesus as we continue on in our relationship. Someday you will see God face to face. And the way you see Jesus on judgment day depends on how you related to him today. Those of us who might reject Jesus in this life will face him as a judge who sentences evildoers to hell. And those of us who accept Jesus will see him as our king and our friend. So make sure you relate to Jesus in the right way so that you can experience God in a helpful way. This bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up. And that's the unusual part. It didn't burn up. Something simple and weak like a bush can become a miraculous dwelling place for Almighty God. And it's normal to read this passage and relate in some ways to Moses or think of what would it be like if I was in Moses' sandals there and 
But do you ever consider maybe what you have in common with that bush? Something simple and weak like you and me can also be filled with the presence of God. And God's presence allows us to not be consumed by the fiery trials of life. In Isaiah 43, it says, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Right? See, like, when the Lord is with you and dwelling inside of you as a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells inside you, it means that even as you go through the fires and trials of life, you will not be consumed. Our God, he can preserve us through any circumstance. Like in Daniel 3, you see the story about Nebuchadnezzar who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, into the burning fire. And here's what he says, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Because they wouldn't bow down to an idol. They were faithful to God. They said, yeah, we definitely did that. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I see four men unbound walking through, walking in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Here's another appearance of God in the fire preserving his people. And the way that that bush was not burned up by fire, when the spirit of God dwells in you, you can walk through fire and not be burned. God never promises you a life free from fiery trials, but he does promise that you won't be destroyed by those trials. God never said he wouldn't give you more than you could handle. Anytime you hear someone say that, God won't give you more than you can handle. You can just tell them, eh, you're wrong. God gives me way more than I can handle all the time. And now as a discipled, mature Christian, you can tell them, my friend, what you meant to say is God won't give me more than he can handle. There's nothing that he can't handle. And whatever you go through, you can take it because God is always with you. Moses said, this is amazing. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. It takes more than a minute to watch that bush burning and realized that it's not burning up. He could have glanced at it and just said, oh, you know, someone let their campfire get out of control or maybe some, you know, lightning strike caused a fire. But he sat there and he watched it. I mean, on one hand, maybe that makes sense. All he really had to do otherwise was just take care of sheep. <laughs> but still, it shows that he was paying attention when it counted. And I would say for a lot of us, it's more difficult to pay attention to what God's doing in a regular day-to-day -day basis because we have these digital smart computers in our pocket who are constantly pinging us and notifying us of updates and you have the busyness of life and dual income, kids in school, people working, managing schedules and sometimes you can get so busy that you miss what God is doing in your life. Have you become too distracted to even notice what God is doing is I want to encourage you, don't miss your miracle. Some miracles God does, they're so big that you can't miss them. Like, you know, in Genesis, God helped Noah build this giant boat so he could survive a worldwide flood. I mean, nobody really missed that miracle right there. But then you think about how some days went by and little miracles also took, plo took place where Noah was watching and hoping, and one day a dove flew in with an olive leaf, and that was a sign that the floodwaters were receding, and that little olive leaf was also a little miracle that represented new life and hope and, and another type of great miracle. Sometimes God does big miracles in our lives. Like I think, you know, one church family member, I remember he had a cancer on an organ, and he got it scanned. He went back up 
to the doctors to follow up, and they couldn't find it. We had prayed for him, and it just disappeared. And they were like, we can't explain this. This cancer just disappeared. We don't, we don't know what happened. And he was like, I, knew what ha- I know what happened. Like, we prayed, and God healed me. That's the kind of thing you just don't miss that. But I would say that more often we miss the, the day-to-day little miracles that we take for granted. Like the fact that you just wake up and you have health to get up and go to work. The fact that you have friends who love you and care about you. The fact that God gave you a job to provide for your needs. The fact that you live in a country where there's freedom to worship your God. The fact that you have food in the cupboard to put in your belly. Like that's a miracle that we don't want to take for granted because if we miss those little miracles, it's easy to also miss the still small voice of God that whispers to us when we're quiet. And it's that still small voice that often calls us to the greatest type of miracle. Don't lose amazement for the miracle that God's doing in your life, that he has preserved you, he saved you. Some of you, you know, without Jesus, you'd be dead right now, but he saved you and he transformed you and he's now working through you. And some of you say, I never expected to come this far. And now you're here. So don't walk into church on Sunday and fail to worship God for the miracle that he did in your life. Don't wake up on Monday and fail to give God thanks for the good things that he did in your life. And then in verse 5, the Lord warned Moses, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And I think it's important to recognize that this wasn't a particularly special patch of dirt. But rather, anywhere God is becomes holy ground. And that carries on with you today. The Spirit of God dwells in you and has made you holy. The way that Moses took off his sandals as a sign of reverence for the holiness of God, Jesus calls you to take off your sinful nature and lay it aside so that you can be holy as he is holy. He has set you apart, making you holy, set you apart from the world and those who are lost in sin and darkness. He has set you apart from sin and declared you righteous. And then one of the ways you can live that out in your day-to-day life is resisting the temptation to sin. And that's a temptation for every one of us. On a daily basis, we resist the temptation to sin because God has made us Holy. So that means that as a Christian, uh, we don't want to make dirty jokes. We don't want to look at porn when no one's watching. We don't want to have premarital sex, even though you say you love each other and you're married in your heart. No, you're not. You're not married. Because it defiles holy ground. You are holy. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. People in this world that we live in, they'll say, it's my body. It's my choice. It's not your body if you're a Christian. You were bought with a price. The Son of God gave his life to redeem you from slavery. So your body is a temple. And don't fail to realize that when we come together as a church and we gather together and God's presence is working among us in a special way, because I do believe that, you know, the Spirit of God goes with you everywhere you go, but when we come together as his people and we worship him and we focus on him, we experience a manifestation of God's presence in a special way, which makes our church gathering times holy in a special way. 
which is an encouragement to someone not to just come to church on a week-in, week-out basis and treat it as common. Not to just rush out after church thinking about errands and what you got to do next, but recognizing that this is a holy opportunity to take off your worries and put on your focus, focusing on the Lord. In verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, I am the God of your father. This is God speaking to Moses. And he's introducing himself and he's talking about himself. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Cellulites, Parasites, and Crystallites <laughs> now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have uh, and I seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. This... This is important. This is a good passage right here. The land flowing with milk and honey, God's going to lead them into. Uh, I used to read that, and as a kid, I would think of like Honey Nut Cheerios. <laughs> and that's not what it is. Uh, when you hear that phrase, Jewish commentaries say that uh, when it talks about milk, it's referring to goat's milk. And that represents green pastures and fertile soil. And when he talks about honey, it's actually not referring to the honey that bees make. It's referring to the sweet syrup of a date uh, tree, the dates. And dates were a primary source of carbohydrates for people in the Middle East. So when God says milk and honey, it's not, it's not like a bowl of cereal, but rather it's talking about a fertile land with lots of food in abundance. So here is God. He introduces himself to Moses as his ancestral God. And that makes sense. He starts out with that family connection. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we don't know how familiar Moses was with God up to this point. You might wonder at times as you go through a hardship where God is. And in this passage, we get a reminder that God is near. We will have troubles in this life, Jesus said. And we might wonder in those moments, like, where is God? Does he hear me when I pray? Does he see what I'm going through? Does he care about me? And I, I think this passage shows you that God cares more than you think. He says, I've seen the oppression. So he saw what the Hebrew people were going through. And he is aware of what's going on in your life, even before you remember to pray and tell him about the problems that are going on in your life. He says, I've heard their cries of distress. Just because God doesn't answer your prayer exactly the way you want to on your timeline, it doesn't mean that he doesn't hear your prayer. And, and the Hebrew people in slavery, they weren't perfect people, but God still heard their cries of distress. So that tells you that even though you might not be a, a perfect Christian, God still hears your cries of distress. God says, I'm aware of their suffering. God understands they're in pain. God understands you when you're going through a hard time. We have a high priest, Hebrews says, that sympathizes with our weakness, and he has faced all the same testing that we have. And then I love this. God says, I have come down to rescue them. God came down to rescue them. I think about like the U.S. Coast Guard. 
going out to rescue a sinking vessel, and they have rescue swimmers who will dive into the water to rescue people who are drowning. You know, the, the, the swimmer, you know, he could just stay up in the helicopter and throw a rope down, like, okay, climb up. But most of us would say, I'm too t- I, can't, I can't climb up that rope, you know, I'm too tired. Uh, but the swimmer, he actually jumps into the water and goes down into danger to rescue the person who needs rescuing. And this is God saying, I came down to rescue you. And then lead them out. I'm going to lead them out of slavery. God, he wants to lead you out of the place of slavery so that you can be free. And he doesn't just lead you out of slavery, but he leads you into his promises. He leads the Israelites into the promised land. And he leads us into his promises, his promise of favor and blessing and eternal life. This is the new life that we get to enjoy with Jesus. And so we see here that this promised land, the land of the Canaanites, God gave it to Israel as their possession. He promised it to Abraham, he gave it to Israel, and it's their land. And that's important to point out because today it's very controversial, this conflict in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians. And people will say that, you know, the Palestinians are oppressed by the Israelites and the Israelites stole their land. You cannot steal the land that God already gave you. And as Christians, we know that when there's a conflict about land in the land of Israel, we stand with Israel because God gave the land to Israel. It doesn't mean that they're always perfect or that as a state, they always do the right thing necessarily, but God didn't appoint me as the judge over Israel. I just read in his word that he gave that land to Israel and that they are his chosen people. And so I support them as a Christian. um, And I pray for the Palestinians to find Jesus as well. In verse 10, it says this, now go, now we're getting into Moses's calling. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, so this is where it gets really interesting. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested. He just didn't get it, did he? If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Okay, so God calls Moses to a seemingly impossible task to lead these Hebrew slaves out of bondage where they had been slaves for 400 years, uh, oppressed by the Egyptians, one of the most powerful nations on earth. And here's Moses, just one guy. You know, he's not like a special forces operator. He doesn't have superpowers. He's just a farmer, a shepherd, uh, one dude. And God says, you're going to go tell King Pharaoh Let my people go. And Moses understandably feels overwhelmed. I want you to realize today that God calls us to more. 
he will always ask you to do more than you think you can handle. Amen? He'll ask you to love more than you think you can. He'll ask you to give more than you think you can give. He'll ask you to forgive more than you think you can forgive. He'll ask you to serve more than you think you can serve. He'll ask you to take more responsibility than you think you can bear. He'll ask you to lay down more of your own sinful preferences than you think you can let go of. He'll ask you to kill more of your own sinful desires than you think you have to kill. He'll ask for more than we have more than we can, more than we want, God doesn't do safe spaces. God, he does promise to preserve you in the fire. He does promise to go with you. So if you're feeling comfortable in your calling, it's a good sign that your calling probably didn't come from God. Because God always asks for more. God's calling will always transcend your potential. Moses had all these insecurities, and he's like, well, who who am I? Who am I? What Moses asked reflects what we all want to ask in our moments of insecurity. Who am I? And we want someone to come along and affirm our positive attributes and say, you are smart. You are so special. You are so important and talented, and everyone likes you. But even getting affirmation from your heroes leaves you unsatisfied. It's like giving a bouquet of flowers to a starving man who craves food. All the world can offer to your insecurities is an overinflated sense of self. The world says, believe in yourself, trust your instincts, follow your heart. You can do it. You are enough. But deep in our souls, we know that's not true. And it doesn't matter how many personality tests you take, what your Enneagram number is, or your strength finders, right? The confidence you need to fulfill your calling isn't found by looking within, but by looking to heaven. God didn't encourage Moses with words of affirmation, but through divine revelation. Moses asked God, who am I? And God answered with, I am. God just showed us that the secret to fixing your insecurity is to flip your focus. When you feel insecure, don't look inside. Look to God on high. You won't find your answers by looking in the mirror, but by looking in the word of God. Your lack of potential has never been a problem for the one who called you. So when we ask, who am I? God's answer is, I am. When we ask, how will I? God's answer is, I will. Don't let self-doubt stand in the way of your destiny. When you feel overwhelmed by God's calling, get over yourself. When your potential is limited, God is omnipotent. The I am won't call you to do anything greater than he is is. The I am won't ask you to go anywhere. He is not. Our hope is not in I. Our hope is in I am. If he called you to only what you are capable of, it'd be too easy for you to take the credit. But he called you beyond what's humanly possible so that his name will be glorified in working through us as broken vessels. I'm a big fan of counselors and going to therapy, but so much of therapy is geared towards understanding yourself better. We think, if I understood myself better and why I do the things I do, I'd be happier and healthier and more fulfilled. But you can't know who you are until you know who God is. 
God says what you need to live out your calling is to understand him better. The Bible doesn't really spend a lot of time focused on helping you understand yourself better. It does give you some clues. Spoiler, you're a sinner and selfish. Now you understand pretty much why you do everything you do. The primary purpose of God's word is to reveal who he is. And with Moses, God gives his personal name. Before that point, God was referred to as God, general names for God. But here with Moses, he reveals his eternal personal name. And it's the name Yahweh, which appears in Hebrew as Y-H-W-H. It's written without vowels. This word appears 6,828 times in the Old Testament. And the Hebrews, the Jews, out of reverence, they wouldn't say his name out loud. So when they came to his name in scripture, as they were reading scripture, they would just say the title Adonai, which means Lord, is a title that means Lord. The Jews considered God's name so holy. But the name Yahweh is theologians' pretty much best guess at how it might have been pronounced, although nobody's sure 100% because, like I said, it wasn't written with vowels. Some translations of the Bible, if you're an older Christian, you probably grew up in church hearing him, uh, hearing him referred to as Jehovah. And Jehovah uh, is uh, the vowels from Adonai inserted into the Hebrew letters YHWH. So it's based on a Germanic pronunciation of the Latinized transliteration of the, the Hebrew YHWH. Uh, but theologians today pretty much agree that Jehovah is not the proper pronunciation of God's name, which is kind of funny because the Jehovah's Witnesses are convinced that it is. And that, to the extent that they, they'll say any other uh, title for God other than Jehovah is borderline idolatry or heresy. So that's, that's fitting for that false religion to have a false understanding of God's name. It's far more important, though, to know God through faith in Jesus Christ than it is to correctly pronounce his name. Okay? I want us to all be clear on that. So we don't want to get all nitpicky and legalistic about how we pronounce his name or which name we use or which title we use. As a pastor, about every five days or so, I come across someone who's like, his name isn't Jesus, it's Yeshua. Or they'll say, you know, it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah, it's God. It's just like, relax. Just relax, okay? The name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, it has four possible meanings. Each one of them is perfectly accurate. His name can mean, I am what I am, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, or I will be who I will be. And the reason all four translations are accurate is Hebrew does not have a word for the present tense of the verb to be, which is not uncommon. Uh, Arabic and Russian is the same. In other words, there's no Hebrew word for am or is or are. Uh, so here we get kind of the best representation of what his name means. I am what I am. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I will be who I will be. And in the Jewish culture, in scripture, a name represents the essence of a person. 
So when God reveals this as his name, he is revealing the essence of who he is. He's communicating to us something about his nature. And what you learn from God's name is that God is self-existent and not dependent on anything else for his own existence. God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. When he says, I will be what I will be, God is immutable. That means unchanging in his being or in his character. So he is not in the process of becoming something different from what he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And then also, he is eternal in his existence. He always was. He always will be. And maybe you're like, well, can you explain that a little bit more to me? How could he always have been? And the answer is no. I can't explain it because he's God. When Moses says, God, who will I say sent me? God basically said, tell them. Self-existent, unchanging, eternal, needs no one and nothing sent you. So God communicates his personal name to Moses here. And this is the beginning of the process of us coming to know him on a more personal level. But the main focus of this passage is God's promise to be with Moses and help him fulfill his calling. And I want you to know today that the presence of God makes anything possible. This is God's promise of encouragement to you. And it's really the answer to all of our questions of how will I do what you've called me to do? How can I trust that it's going to be okay? God, how am I going to get over this problem in my life? And God says, I will be with you. He doesn't always answer our question the way that we want. He doesn't always answer our question about our, our own insecurities with words of affirmation. Ryan, you're, you're special, and I've called you, and I've chosen you. He just says, I am. And when you ask God, God, how are we going to do what you called us to do? God just says, I will go with you. The answer is in him. The Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 26, I will be with you. He said to Jacob in Genesis 31, I will be with you. He says to Moses in Exodus 3, I will be with you. He says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And now we have, I would say, an even greater experience with God's presence. We know the Lord Jesus who came down to rescue us. The way that God came down in the burning bush with the promise to rescue his people from slavery. And as you flip forward in your Bibles to the New Testament, you're going to see this connection. And that's going to be a constant theme throughout this series. Seeing the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's so much connection in scripture. There's over 60,000 cross references in scripture. But you're going to see in John chapter 8, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced as he he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you weren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Does that sound familiar? Yes. At this, they picked up stones to throw at him. Again, because when he said, I am, he was claiming to be the I am. And they were picking up stones because they were going to kill him for what they thought was blasphemy. They didn't realize it was 
a honest testimony about who he really is. And you might have heard this before, but Jesus makes seven I am statements in the gospel as he connects himself to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the resurrection in the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the true vine. He is, as he always has been, and he always will be. See, Yahweh manifested himself to Moses in a burning bush. Jesus came down and manifested himself to us as a man who leads us into even deeper relationship with God on a personal level. Yahweh revealed himself to Moses saying, I'm the God of your father. But Jesus came and introduced us to God, our father. Yahweh heard his people's cries of distress and came down to rescue them just like Jesus heard his people's cries for a Messiah and came down to live among them and he rescues us from death and he leads us out of slavery and he takes us out into the promises of God. And so you see how God's nature and character is unchanging and what God said to Moses, I've, I've seen and I've heard and I, I care and I've come down and I'm going to rescue you. I think about what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 when he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read this and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So we don't want to miss our miracle with Jesus, do we? We know that Jesus cares about us, all of our problems, big and small. He sees us in our, our time of distress, and he has come down to rescue us. He calls you to do more for him than you ever thought was possible. He asks you to die to yourself and live for him as a new creation with a transformed mind. But he doesn't ask you to do it alone, does he? He says, I will fill you with my spirit and wherever you go, the Lord goes with you so you can do whatever he calls you to do. Anything is possible with the presence of God. I'm so grateful for Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time studying, learning more about you and who you are. And as we understand you better, that equips us with everything we need to serve you. We thank you that you're a very present God. You're near to us in our time of trouble. We can trust in you because you don't change. You're the same. We know that there's no problem too big for you because you're the self-existent, eternal creator of the universe. And as we think more and more about who you are, it puts our small problems into perspective. It fills our hearts with hope as we trust in you. We thank you that you're bigger and you're greater and your love for us goes beyond what we could have hoped for. And Lord, I thank you for encouraging us today with reminders about who you are and how you love us. And uh, church, as we're here today, I wanna take a moment. If you're here today and you need to accept Jesus as your savior, this would be a great time for you to do that. 
This would be an opportunity for you to become a child of God and be rescued from sin, which is what Jesus came to do, rescue you from sin. He didn't come just to start another world religion. He came to be the way, truth, and life. He is the only name by which we can be saved. And if you're here today, it's not an accident. Someone is with us at a campus online. This could be your day to accept Jesus and be made right with God. You can be forgiven of sin. You can become a child of God. You can be rescued from eternal death and be brought into eternal life. And if that's you today, in your heart, just open up to God and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you can just say, God, I need you to save me. You can say, God, I am a sinner and I need you to forgive my sins. And then you just need to put your trust in Jesus and just say, I believe he died for my sins on the cross. I believe he rose again. And I want to follow Jesus from this day forward. And then if you pray that and believe it, the spirit of God will come inside of you and change you from the inside out. You will become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life and you will have the promise of a better future. So we thank you for eternal life, Lord. We thank you for those you are saving. We pray in Jesus' name that you'll do a mighty work in every person who needs salvation today. And we trust you to complete the good work you started and carry it through. We, we thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.